Basri Report on Sabahul Muslim. Joining us for this week's Asari Report, Angelo Fake. Assalamualaikum. Welcome. Walaikum salam. Now, a witness in the Marshalltown fire inquiry has confessed to setting the blaze, among other revelations about criminal acts going on in the building, and was then re- arrested. Does this indicate a move towards closure, or does it raise more questions about governance in the city of Joburg? So I think many people um, have looked at this particular story and wondered when they were going to find the culprit or culprits. Uh, it seems very fortuitous that one person stands up in a you know, sort of inquiry and confesses to this. One wants to know what did the police know ahead of this confession? Where was the police investigation? Uh, where is crime intelligence in this? And this is one building in the city that is owned by the city. So this was not even just a private matter. This involved public property owned by the city government of the city of Johannesburg. And so the city owns thousands of other buildings uh, that, according to reports, have similar or comparable uh, states of disrepair and mismanagement. Now the question is, given that this witness not only confessed to setting the fire, but being involved in all sorts of activities that involve drug uh, trading, uh, that involved extortion, that involved other forms of violence and deaths. The question is, what is it about the city government of Johannesburg that they have so little control over the properties that they own? Uh, landlords who have similar approaches to their tenants and occupation of their buildings would certainly end up in court on all sorts of criminal charges. The question here is, the officials in charge of the Johannesburg Property Company, the, the, the officials in charge of housing, the officials in charge of public safety for the city of Johannesburg, they need to account for how the state in this particular building got as far as the witness indicates. The police need to account for why their investigation showed up so little compared to what the witness is telling us. Um, And then I think uh, we need to then have some accountability for all of those officials in the public domain, um, because this is only one of many symptoms of mismanagement in the city. And so, no, far from closure. I think while this may give us some indication, if the witness is to be believed, of the particular cause of this particular fire, there were other elements of his testimony um, in that commission of inquiry uh, with Justice Kampipi that will have to be accounted for, that speaks to lack of governance, uh, poor intelligence, uh, both on the part of city uh, as well as uh, national and provincial police and other forms of intelligence services. Um, And one goes back, one thinks back to the Vawani fires of schools uh, almost a decade ago, where, you know, things were happening and it seemed as if the state far from being in control of the environment that they're supposed to govern, seem to be on the back foot. And here, similar kinds of questions have to be asked. What, who knew what, at what point, and why did they not act on it in the state mechanisms? Limpo Hani, the widow of Chris Hani, has taken legal steps to stop the MK party from using her husband's image and legacy. ANC leaders in KZN have indicated that they don't think of MK as a threat. Is MK just a haven for the disaffected? Or is the cause, Angelo, for concern when it comes to Literally House? So at the moment, uh, the MK party seems to be very much focused on KwaZulu-Natal. And we must remember that KwaZulu-Natal is the one province where the African National Congress has seen significant electoral decline. It is a very populous province, so a large section of the electorate is there. But it's also the home and home base of, you know, 
former President Jacob Zuma and former President of the African National Congress has now put his weight behind this party. And while ANC officials in the province may poo-poo, um, among other things, MK's ability to cut into the electoral gains, they must remember that the outcomes of the last or the latest uh, you know, electoral conference for the party left the province uh, out of much of, of the leadership positions in the party. And very few of us can forget those scenes uh, from um, you know, the conference in December 2022 when busloads of people headed for KwaZulu-Natal before the conference was even completed. And part of that resulted in the conference dragging itself into January um, and all sorts of issues having to be announced before and slightly after the January 8th statement of 2023. So what I think is at issue here is whether or not this cuts further into the ANC's electoral decline in KwaZulu-Natal, even if people don't pitch up for the MK party. If MK is able to sway enough people not to vote for the African National Congress and simply to stay at home, or if they create a culture of fear, and this is a province in which political assassinations have you know, been ongoing for at least two decades, uh, that people don't turn up uh, to vote. And so far from this just being, oh, well, uh, a thing not to worry about, um, this is something that I think the ANC needs to take seriously. As for whether it is just a haven for the disaffected, Given the prominence of some of the people who end up in the party, given some of the statements made by MK, and given what Mr. Jacob Zuma himself has said um, about his relationship with MK and with the ANC, there does seem to be a kind of shedding of individuals who are happy inside what the ANC calls its broad church into split-off parties. We saw this in the establishment of COPE in the split between Thabo Mbeki and Jacob Zuma in that transition of leadership. We saw it in the establishment of the Economic Freedom Fighters a decade ago when the Youth League leadership became disaffected with the party. We've seen it in the parties or allegations that the party established rival smaller parties um, like ATM and the AIC. And we've even seen people from those parties defect not, in fact, into MK, but into the EFF. And so there seems to be what... A decade ago, we would have called political floor crossing, except this time not inside legislatures, um, but realignments of individuals who were prominent in one set of parties uh, into another set of parties. Uh, the latest uh, to put his weight behind this is Andem Kitama from the Black First Land First movement. And the question that many people will ask is, is this really just going to become a sort of homeland for people who are unhappy with their own prospects in the ANC rather than with ANC governance and ANC, um, you know, delivery. Uh, so the test for MK will be what percentage of the vote do they get in the general elections and where do they get those gains? If it's mostly in KwaZulu-Natal, we know that it becomes a regional uh, force, um, much like the... Um, National Freedom Party came in, became in relation to the IFP. If they gain, you know, thin gains across the country, then there's something else for Lutuli House to be concerned about, which is that they're not just shedding concerns or supporting KwaZulu-Natal, but that they have uh, growing disaffection. And even if MK does not survive beyond this particular election, the ANC then has to take some serious introspection about disaffected people among its own ranks rather than just ordinary voters turning away from the party. What, what do you think of uh, the ANC deciding to postpone uh, disciplining uh, Jacob Zuma to after the elections? 
I think that this is an older tactic in the African National Congress over the last decade, that when problems arise with senior members of the party, instead of decisively dealing with the issue, they postpone it. We saw this particularly under the Jacob Zuma administration, where senior officials, when they were accused of malfeasance, the defense of those officials was often, well, you know, until somebody is found guilty in a court of law, they're presumed innocent. The disciplinary mechanisms of the party were supposedly strengthened between 2018 and 2024. Uh, Fikile Malula famously said um, when he accepted in his first speech as the Secretary General in December of 2022, that under him, party discipline would be very, very strong. The buck would stop with him and there would be absolutely no ill discipline in the party. But we saw in December 2023, when the party's parliamentary caucus went to vote against um, the parliamentary motion that President Cyril Ramaphosa has a case to answer based on the recommendations of the special investigative um, process that Parliament started. Um, and several senior members, including Dr. Nkazazana Dlamini Zuma, voted against the party line. They, they said there would be consequences. There have been no visible consequences because until her resignation as a member of parliament, uh, Dr. Nkosazana Tlaminizuma sat inside cabinet, sat inside a ministry, inside the presidency. Um, so not only are there no consequences um, in that respect, uh, there are no consequences even inside the party. Let's not forget that... Um, you know, a senior figure uh, like Lindy Wessel was able to, you know, make statements out of cabinet uh, that you would think would bring the African National Congress into disrepute because it spoke against active party policy and it also spoke against specifically um, the kind of position that was being held through the NEC and the National Working Committee and cabinet and the presidency itself. But nothing happened to her. She simply faded out of prominence um, by through the cabinet renewal. And so my sense is that leaving the Jacob Zuma disciplinary process to later is, I suspect, in the eyes of or in the minds of some of the people who plan this, a way to avoid outright conflict. But this avoidance strategy has not worked with Jacob Zuma in the last 20 years. These are the problems that the ANC has created going all the way back to the 1990s, um, when Jacob Zuma had all sorts of financial problems and the then president of the party and president of the country, Nelson Mandela, helped him out. Uh, it came out with the Jacob Zuma rape trial in which he was acquitted. It's come up in Jacob Zuma's fraud, um, or not even fraud, but various other forms of malfeasance trials around the arms deal um, and the party protected him. Um, it came up with Nkandla, the party protected him. So my sense is that if Jacob Zuma is to be disciplined, uh, sooner would have been better than later for the party so that they can move into the election with some kind of clear slate. My sense is that they're still hoping to convince him to change his mind, much as they did during his, um, you know, that month between losing or no longer being president of the party and Cyril Ramaphosa became president of the party until February 14, 2018, when for some reason over a 24 to 36 hour period, they all went begging to Jacob Zuma to resign and eventually he did just before midnight. So my sense is that Mr. Jacob Zuma is a problem for the ANC. They feel anxiety that if they discipline him now, they lose many of the people that would have supported the party because of him. Um, if they don't discipline him now, they still run the risk of him causing further damage. Mm. Um, you know, so my sense is that for the moment, they, they want him inside the tent, messing, rather than outside the tent, messing into the tent. Because as long as he's inside, they think they can control him. But I'm not certain that there is enough evidence that they're able to do so. 
Finally, then, the ICJ will give a finding on South Africa's application today. This is clearly most important for Palestinians and especially for the people of Gaza who have been subjected to genocidal violence by the Israeli state. Are there any local political consequences, whatever the outcome, especially in an election year? So regardless of what the ICG, ICJ recommends, the question is going to be what are the positions of South African political parties uh, ahead, you know, after this. So if there is a finding that the conditions for genocide are indeed on process and what should be happening now is that intervention should happen, the parties that have stood with Israel and have indicated that they think the South African government's actions are premature and often out of kilter, and sided with the United States and its Western European uh, allies, they would have to account for what their position is in relation to that judgment, because many voters um, may be looking at their judgment on this and say, what has gone wrong here? If the finding is against the South African case and for the Israeli state, and the ICJ finds that this is not in fact uh, a genocide in progress, or that the conditions for a genocide to be imminent are not being met, then, of course, the African National Congress would have to explain why it supported its deployees in government to proceed with this. But my sense is that many people around the world, not only in South Africa, but in other um, you know, democracies, and let's not forget that something like 40% of the world's population will be involved in elections of some sort or another in 2024, will show up the increasing divide between, you know, what's happened and what people feel on the ground and what their governors are suggesting um, is the way forward. And also the gap between the majority of the world's population and the international instruments that are supposed to govern international law. Um, and my sense is that we're in a pivotal moment where the legitimacy of international frames and legal frameworks are going to be questioned. But more importantly, how parties in their domestic spaces react to this may impact on the way in which they perform in domestic elections, um, even though this does feel like it's a distant international con concern and question. Angela, as always, thank you so much for your time. Shokran. That was this week's uh, Asri Report with Angelo Fe.